0: Hello friends and welcome to Northern Static, the show where Canadian composers tell us about the state of their art. I'm bassist and composer Pete Johnston. On this show, I talk to composers from a range of musical scenes to find out how they make their music, why it sounds the way it does, and most importantly, what they think we should be listening for when we hear it. In today's episode, I talk to pianist, composer, and improviser Marilyn Lerner. Marilyn's wide-ranging musical interests include jazz, Cuban music, music for silent films, traditional Jewish music, and classical music, among many others. Improvisation is at the heart of her music-making, but she also composes music based on her remarkably diverse musical interests. A chat with Marilyn Lerner, coming up next on Northern Static. Welcome to episode 11 of the show. The concept for the show is simple. I sit down and talk with composers about the creative processes, and they play some compositions of their choosing as examples of what they do. Think of it as a group listening session where the creator of the music is there to guide us through how and why they make the music they do. My guest today is a virtuoso pianist and imaginative synthesis of a diverse collection of musical styles. I first heard Marilyn Lerner in Halifax in the 90s when she came through town as part of saxophonist Jane Bennett's Spirit of Havana project which was dedicated to exploring the connections between jazz and Cuban music. I was immediately struck by her fluid and inventive improvising in that group, so I went to see her the next time she came through town, which was with her duo with singer Dave Wall, where they were interpreting traditional Jewish songs. Not long after moving to Toronto, I heard Marilyn's Mad Satie trio, with bassist Andrew Downing and guitarist Michael Occipinti, which used the music of French composer Eric Satie as a launching pad for improvisation. Add to that some questing free improvisation in the Queen Mab Trio with clarinetist Laurie Friedman and Dutch violinist Eich Hahnemann, and I'm sure you're getting a clear picture here of a deeply curious musician who has followed her ear to a broad range of places. And these projects are just a few of the many you will find in Marilyn's discography. Throughout her career, improvisation has been at the center of Marilyn's music making, and she was equally skilled at totally free improv and navigating the intricate harmonic structures of contemporary jazz. But she is also a composer and uses all of the influences mentioned above to craft compositions that encourage the exploration of specific genres and materials. Having heard her in so many different contexts, I was curious about how she thinks about knitting her various musical interests together as she composes for her projects. As always here at Northern Static, we will start things off with a bit of Marilyn's music, then get into our discussion. Here's a piece from her 2003 duo record with the guitarist Sunny Greenwich called Simple Pleasures. Marilyn Leonard, piano player, composer, improviser, person who knows things about Winnipeg. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Really great to have you here. Been a long time admirer of your playing and your music and uh, really interested to know what it is that got you where you are today, doing the kinds of things that you do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I know you primarily as a improviser in, in sort of recent years. We've done a little bit of playing together and seen some different concerts of groups, but I know you also compose and I've heard your composition. So when did you start composing and what got you interested in starting to write your own music?
2: Well, I wrote my own music since I was in grade three. Right. I, um, Early adopter. I, yeah. I was studying classical music I just started. I had this friend and we used to write little tunes together. We were both taking piano lessons at the time. So, you know, in terms of wanting to make stuff up, since I was very small. I didn't really think about composing because then I studied classical music. But I guess I always liked to fool around. Remember, I I would sit down and try to think if I could write a little Irish ditty. (laughs) I was into world music, you know. And so I guess I was thinking of what are the elements of that music. And then I was very much into Beethoven and the classics, you know, Brahms, Beethoven, and... I didn't really think too compositionally about things, uh, although I was studying analysis when I went to this really good conservatory in Montreal. So there was a lot of study, and I was quite young at the time. I think it was when I started to play jazz and study improvisation that uh, I was writing jazz compositions. Actually, to just sort of backtrack, I used to write folk songs. It's like I taught myself guitar. And, oh, really? I think I was always interested in singer-songwriters, and then I, I wrote my own. Hmm. So I didn't really think I'm going to be a composer, but I right. just liked making music.
0: Because I wonder about that with the kind of pedagogy around classical music and such, a sort of connection between playing the music and them being compositions sometimes seems much more severed than in studying jazz, for example where the analysis of the pieces can sort of seem secondary to the digital elements of just putting them together.
2: Yeah, well, the thing is, if you're studying Beethoven and Mozart and Brahms, unless you're studying composition, why would you want to write a Beethoven sonata? Right. Whereas with jazz, I mean, it's, it's complicated because a lot of jazz came from blues or from different kinds of... Um, it wasn't necessarily people sitting down and the way we might today construct right. jazz pieces, I think. It's a good question.
0: And did you see a connection between the, the folk music you are interested in and the kind of formal music training you were doing, or were they kind of separate things in your life?
2: Well, until I got to York, I just did music because I was good at it and I liked it. Because I sure wasn't good at ballet, which was the other <laughs> extracurricular activity my parents were trying me out at. So when I say I was good at it, I mean I wasn't bad at it. <laughs> but uh, I don't think it was till I hit York because there... I was studying improvisation with Casey Sokol, as well as trying to get my fingers around some jazz. You know, when you start studying jazz, it's huge. It takes a long time to start to commit the vocabulary and the harmonies and all the aspects. I don't know that I wrote that much at the beginning. I was just studying the repertoire. I can't really remember writing a whole bunch of compositions. At that point, was probably playing and improvising and less writing.
0: Right, so the kind of process of internalizing the standards and the way of playing them
2: yeah and even the first recording I did which was in Winnipeg with Larry Roy I only had two compositions of my own on that and then after that I did the first solo CD and that was all my pieces and then I was writing more but I think the thing is it took quite a long time for me in some ways to sort of figure out what I wanted to write I didn't want to write something that sounded like a jazz standard uh, it took me a long time to find my voice and I think also you need people to play write for and play with. And then when you have people you like to do that with, it becomes a much more natural thing to do.
0: And where did you develop that community? Was that in Winnipeg or here? you?
2: Well, I had a weird kind of, you know, I went to York and I studied jazz and I did the whole program, but I never really played a lot in the city. I played a lot of parties, but I wasn't playing at George's. I wasn't in that coterie of jazz musicians Mm -hmm. playing bebop, you know, like great players like Mark Eisenman were in my, so I felt a bit on the outside And I was at that point also, wasn't playing so much jazz. I was playing with a folk singer. I was doing some different kinds of music, rock, blues, country music. I was in all these weird bands. So I wasn't playing so much jazz until I moved to Winnipeg, which is very bizarre. But it was a small city and there were some good players there. And that's where I started to play more in some ways. Mm. I just couldn't get into the scene here. It was very, I don't know whether it was because I was a woman at the time or I just wasn't a bebopper or whatever it was, but... I was pretty down on the scene here at the time. So part of that was maybe that I didn't fit into that scene in a certain way and I had to go away to sort of find myself because it was in Winnipeg that I got to experiment explore a lot of different kinds of music.
0: So were you able to put together a group?
2: Yeah, that's when I met Larry. He's a great guitar player and writer. And we had a group and we played at the Alcan Jazz Competition and toured across Canada. And that group was the one where I played with Claude Ranger. Oh, wow. Yeah. We got into the finals at the Montreal Jazz Festival wow. and our drummer couldn't make it and he called Claude. Claude said, okay. And then he came and played in Montreal with us, you know, on the outside stage. And right. then After that, I played a couple of more times with Claude, playing my music. Wow. And it was amazing. Yeah. Wow.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I've got Mark Miller's book on my shelf. Yeah. About him, which I haven't read yet. <laughs> Maybe now I will. Mm-hmm. So what were the tunes you were writing at that time? Like were there particular models you were drawing from?
2: I think I've always written with classical music in my mind. When I say classical music, it's like saying Africa. It's just so bloody big. It's like people think, oh, Africa. But particularly Debussy, Ravel, the certain kinds of harmonies, and it just was in my ears a lot. And I think because I'm writing at a time when, you know, the 50s has happened, were cool jazz and more orchestral stuff and more compositional stuff. And then also Keith Jarrett was a very big influence on me. So I didn't really model myself in some ways. I just kind of wrote from what my ear heard rather than sitting and listening to Sigourney Silver and trying to, and this is not in no way critical, but maybe I should have done this more, but I never did. I always wrote what I heard.
0: What was it about Debussy and Ravel, for example, that appealed to you?
2: And still does.
0: Yeah. What elements of that did you sort of bring into an improvisatory context? Well,
2: I think if I had to rank that, harmony is probably my favorite part of music. I love harmonies because you can get away with so much. You know, you have a general idea of what the function is. You know, is it moving or is it putting off resolving or is it resolving? It's a little simplified, but generally speaking, that's what you're dealing with, right? But then you have a palette of colors that you can use to express this so much emotion I started to discover and still I'm discovering that whereas in traditional jazz particularly or bebop there are voicings and ways of thinking of chords and functions of chords I found in 20th century music more what the hell I you know I was just, I found chords that seemed to be defying some of those they worked but they were sort of defying the function and it just happened the other day because I'm into Schubert now Schubert sonatas Okay, and there's this one sonata I'm playing. What, you're shaking your well, head? amazing. Head yeah, yeah. No, I'm just, <laughs> and uh, there's this one chord that's like a C, B natural, and then there's a B flat on top uh, in the right hand. And so it's like, but it functions as a dominant chord with a kind of uh, because of the major seven and the voicing. I'm sure tons of jazz players play this chord. But for me personally, one of the ways I discover that works, it works how it resolves and look at the chord. So then I would think, Oh, could I use that chord somewhere? And that's what I find interesting about harmony. But I kinda write like I don't know what's coming and I discover it and it's very tactile. Usually I just put my hands on the piano and feel something and then start. And if there's a little kernel of something I like, then I might try to expand it. Hmm.
0: It seems like you'd spend some time playing some of that composed repertoire, like the you know, yeah. piano pieces.
2: It's still my go to. Yeah. Bach. Yeah. Schubert has become recently the thing that I'm really I mean, I love songs. So I think Schubert's amazing and when I have the time and I listen and when I can analyze a little bit, then I get ideas. One of the pieces that I wanted to play, this um Birds Are Returning from the album Birds Are Returning that I did with Jane Burnett in Cuba. I think Stravinsky, there was this sort of feeling about the do do
1: do do the spring. spring.
2: And there was something about writing that tune that I wasn't thinking of the Rite of Spring, but when I started to write it, there was something from that tune that I really felt was in this piece. And hmm. when I listen to that particularly, it's a jazz tune, but it doesn't sound like a jazz tune. So, like, I've always been a little bit of an outsider.
0: If you're talking about the harmonies and probably the figurations and such from that piano repertoire, how then do you think about crafting that for a improvising group? Like, if you're thinking about making harmonic cycles or, or more blocks of chords? Well, or, I
2: haven't written for many large ensembles, so... No,
0: I just mean anything that you have done.
2: In terms of writing it for other instruments, yeah. you mean? Well, I think that I usually... I'll come up with something, and then when I get together with the group, we start to try things out. I don't really know a lot of times till we have a chance to experiment. Why don't you try playing this and this octave, or like that? And I suppose the more I do it, the more I feel confident in not knowing or confident in asking... Let's try this or like, let's try that. I, I think it went through a long period of time with not wanting to be a leader, not really knowing for sure what I wanted. And that seems to have be less now. So
1: right.
2: now it's not that I, I, it must be like this and I want this. It's just that I know when I hear something, when I think it feels right and feel more freer to look for that thing without thinking yeah. I have to know what I
0: what? When you're getting together with some folks to play, do you notate the stuff, like bring in some charts kind of thing?
2: Well, I guess the Ugly Beauties is the band that I bring compositions in because the other, some of the units are like the Queen Mab trio a little bit, but certainly the Canfiliano and Lou Grassi trio, we don't say a word to each other. We just play. And it just, that's the improvised. So with this, I think the challenge and the sort of delight of this group, and I guess. When I'm writing anything in an improvised jazz context is to write something that has a lot of open sections or has some decisions that have to be made. So I kind of wrote one piece called Figure and Ground where it starts with a segment and then there's a fill a player has to play and then we repeat and then the next player fills. And then there's a a place it has to go to the next section. But the improvisation is getting to that next section. And I I write a lot like that. I wrote on the new CD, too, some tunes that are like that, where I have these sections, but I don't want to put in the bridge. I want the bridge to be created in the improvisation to the next section. Like, I've never seen the charts for the Jew Free 3, but that trio is, to me, the sort of model of when's it improvised and when's it written, and you can't even tell sometimes.
0: I transcribed a bunch of them, so I have charts, but I don't know if they're correct.
2: Okay, that's right. <laughs> They're my
0: own, my own versions of them.
2: So you have a sense of something you feel that is written.
0: Yeah, and there's something about transcribing, kind of rendering it visually that makes it okay. I think maybe this is more fixed than it sounds when you can see the relationship is pretty clear. Anyway, I'll have to show it to Steve Swallow and ask him.
2: Yeah, I have to. <laughs> I'd like to see those. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the thing about that is that if somebody plays something long enough, a composed piece will start sounding less composed and more improvised because there's improvisation. The more comfort you have with something, the more you can depart because you know you'll come back.
0: So I know you've also done a lot of exploring of Eastern European music. So I'm interested how that has informed your work or the process that you've gone through to dig into that music.
2: Yeah, I mean, the story of that is that, well, first of all, I studied at York also music of the Americas, Bob Whitmer. Uh And that was a great course, and I got quite interested in Cuban music, so... That's sort of where this all begins. Well, actually, it's a longer story than that. But my father had a radio show of Jewish music. So the first music I actually heard was Hebrew, Israeli, Klezmer music and Hasidic music. So that was sort of in the house. But when I studied world music, I think the thing about that study was it taught me how to listen to music. And then when I went to do this recording in Cuba... I got really interested. I was just, of course, who cannot help but be blown away by the fact that these musicians that I was playing with, like who are now some of the top musicians in New York, like Daphne Prieto and Giovanni Terry, uh, that they studied classical music, but they knew their own music so well. That's really what made me think that Jewish music is not just a Gila.
0: Right, so studying this music from outside your culture led you back to your own? You said studying world music taught you how to listen to music. How could you?
2: I think the world music and this, this Music of the Americas course, it just taught us how to listen. And I was studying ethnomusicology. I was like, what does the singer's voice sound like? Is it tense? Is it, you know, the ways in which we think about, is it harmony? Is, it, uh, is there harmony? Is there polyphony? So it was a bit of a, a road in the terms of the Eastern European music. When I was living in Winnipeg, I teamed up with Danny Kulak, who's a multi-instrumentalist, and he was in one of the first classroom bands in Canada, Finjan. He and I decided we wanted to learn some of his tunes, and then we got Sasha Boychuk, who had just defected from the Moscow Sax Quartet. See, the same thing about Eastern European music is that the musicians who all played with each other. So you have Russian, Ukrainian Jew- Jews played with Hungarian Jews. So there's a lot of influence in that music, and so we put together all these tunes. And Sasha was playing the sopilka, which is the Ukrainian flute, and we learned some of his tunes that he knew. And so it started to become much richer. And then we would arrange these tunes, try to figure out a way of arranging them that would add some improvisation in there. So started to do that. And then we played here at the Ashkenaz Festival. And then I met a woman there who later became my partner, Adrian Cooper, who's since deceased uh, about six years ago. And I got introduced to folk songs. And in folk songs, it's like snapshots of the culture. and
0: Like Yiddish folk songs, you mean?
2: Yiddish folk songs. Many, many Yiddish folk songs. And... Uh, then I wrote a series of settings with Dave Wall of uh, uh, Still Voice Yiddish, Yeah, yeah, Yiddish leader. And he got me in listening to Franz Wunderlich, who was an amazing interpreter of Schubert and Schumann leader. So it all comes together. Because I had the classical background, I could really know how to listen and I knew how to start thinking about, well, this is a Yiddish leader. So what do we think about that? Or this folk song is talking about war. It's talking about what's this about? And then I could lend my own interpretations to the music. Without jazzifying them, right. I could fill them out in my own way.
0: Tell me a little bit about that filling out, I guess, but more just about if you have a particular kind of practice around composing when you do it or how you think about it if you have a discipline when you're in a writing mode.
2: No, I don't know if I have a discipline. I mean, I think what happens is if I get an idea and then I try and if I hit a wall, I leave it and then I come back and I try to solve that problem. So because I don't, I'm not sitting and composing eight hours a day, I'm writing when I want to. I think a lot of times what happens is that you can't figure out what a transition is going to be from one section to another. You have one idea. and But I, as I say, it's always like, for me, it's always trial and error. Like, is this melody want to go here? And I hear it somewhere in my mind, but I can't quite grasp it yet. So I leave it, and then it starts to present itself again. And I'm, I'm very, it's more like sculpting, I think, when I write. So like take away stuff and figure out what's the right note. And I don't write a lot. But I tend to write more economically or more simple, shorter things. And really, I want to hear something that I is in there, but I haven't heard before. It's kind of like that. I feel like I'm always reaching for something.
0: And do you find yourself writing for specific projects, thinking of it that way? Or kind of more general sense and then fitting compositions to different projects?
2: Mm. Well, if I was a prolific composer, I'd have a lot of different answers for you here. So I feel... <laughs> But I mean, with the Ugly Beauties, for example, I've definitely written some music for them. And I think when you have someone to write for, like I said, if you're not going to play a solo, I mean, I could do another solo recording, I feel, at this point, of pieces I've never played and explore them more. I mean, Paul Blay is a big inspiration that way. There's a lot to explore there. But to me, generally the compositions have been springboards for improv. So in terms of discipline, to answer your question, I just try to stay with... It, but if it's not coming, I don't force it. Sometimes it can take months for something to resolve itself. And then I got thinking, well, right, I struggle with this for so long. Why? It's that bar.
0: Well, maybe now's a good time to hear some. You brought a couple pieces along, but maybe we should start with the Birds Are Returning from the album, mm-hmm. Birds Are Returning. Mm-hmm. All right, that's Birds Are Returning. So what about that tune made you want to bring it in?
2: Well, it's a composition. It's interesting. There are elements that I like in pieces. It has some uneven bars. They're not all in 4-4. And it was, again, it was a good example of the way I write. It's as if something's hidden there or something. It's like a sculpture. And when I start, it's just like unformed. And then as I start to whittle away at what I don't want, it's almost a sort of reductive way of writing to what I really do want. There's not one note I don't like in that piece. Because I could probably write a lot more stuff, but I don't like to write a lot of stuff. I like to write the stuff that's distilled. That's really Hmm. what I want to say. And so I'm proud of that piece. I think it's a really nice piece. and It's a great piece to play on and to play. It rocks. And I also think that it's not, like I said, a jazz piece It's not a jazz piece. There is some influence in there of some of the classical stuff for me.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a nice point sometimes that we forget is the answer can be sometimes as simple as it's fun to play. It sounds fun to play. Like It's a joyous sounding piece, but also just the way that players approach it as such.
2: I mean, I could play something else right now. It's a sad ballad that I wrote after both my parents passed away. And there's not one note in there that I don't feel. Okay. It's called Open My Eyes, dedicated to my mother.
0: This is the uh, Ugly Beauties with Matt Brubeck on the cello Mm -hmm. and Nick Fraser on the drums. Mm -hmm. All right. You can hear in there the um, some of the art song mm-hmm. kind of thing with yeah. the figuration in the piano and the melody there and the Schubertian way of knitting it together. Was that something you were thinking about there?
2: Well, I just listen to a lot of the music, so I think it, it sort of seeps in. Because I have to say that when I'm just listening to music, I listen to Bill Evans, I listen to... I go through phases, but I'm always listening to classical music, so I think that's probably the biggest influence in my jazz. So I don't know, maybe I'm not even a jazz player. I'm just more of a... Someone who studied jazz and likes classical right. music.
0: <laughs> Piano player. Mm-hmm. But is there improvising in this piece?
2: Yeah, he's improvising now. He's pulling on the changes. But that's different than something else. You know, if you want to talk about the projects, try Broken Glass. This is one of those pieces that has some written sections and then has sections that are, you'll, you'll see when you hear it, there's parameters in the sections, but they're pretty open.
1: Thank you.
0: Yeah, that piece clearly had a lot more improvising and seemed like composed bits in between the improvising or maybe the improvising knitting together the composed bits.
2: I just think it's an interesting approach to this problem of improvising and composing. I mean, if I want to write a tune that has changes or a groove, I can do that. But if I want something where it's there's a flavor or something that I've written, but also leaves room for musicians to make decisions. And I do tend to like harmonies. I like melodies. I rarely write stuff that's really... So, out there. So, it's always a challenge to write something that doesn't sound like this is the written part and this is the improvised part. So, what I'd like to develop more is this idea of providing some structure, but allowing for people to make decisions. How are you going to get from here to there? So, there's another tune ever, Raccoon. It gets to a certain part. We're improvising on two bars, and then we have to make our way to a 5 8 section. And every time we do it, it's completely different, of course, right? And as we get to do it more, we can really build something so that it sounds organic. That's, I love that part of music making, where we're all thinking together about how to transition from one section to another so that it's smooth. Now, I think that's a really great thing for a group to do. Mm-hmm. And yet there's still a composition there. It's not entirely free.
0: Giving kind of goalposts to work towards.
2: And that's what I thought the Jew Free 3 was doing. Mm-hmm. That Live in Stuttgart album was a very major right. influence for me Yeah. in terms of being able to do that.
0: Yeah, I think that's what they did most of the time. They didn't play free. There was always a composition.
2: There was somewhere to go, but then yeah. they extrapolated. And You mentioned
0: earlier, kind of off the cuff, that uh, maybe you weren't really a jazz musician.
2: <laughs> Part
0: of what I'm exploring on the show here is the idea of identity and composer as a particular kind of identity that we all might relate to in different ways and of course jazz comes up all the time so offhandedly suggesting maybe you're not really a jazz musician uh, what does it mean I mean
2: I love to play the music and it's one of the highest forms of music I when I think about people who really devoted their lives to playing within a tradition then I feel like, well, no, I don't think I've done that. I've been a bit more restless. And I think in some ways, through the years, sometimes it's been depressing because I felt like, well, I have to sort of follow my own path, wherever it's going to get me or not get me. And when I listen to people play who are dedicated, bebop players or dedicated, I, I don't have those kinds of jobs. But I understand music, and I, I guess I go more into the freer, free jazz, Cecil Taylor school. I will listen to a group that sounds like, yeah, that's a certain kind of level of jazz. So I suppose I am a jazz player, not like some other jazz players, but as I am.
0: Yeah, I guess for me, the issue comes around talking around the practice and the sound and versus the repertoire or the relationship between that, because I hear and you're playing a lot of jazz, but you're not playing that repertoire, right? Or those kind of, those kind of chord progressions and that kind of Harmony.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the things we just did, there's this nice little group with it. Evan Cartwright and Rich Schwager and Brody and I. Well, Brody and I used to get together and just play a standard, but free. And this group did a bunch of standards, but we played them in an incredibly loose way. And I love doing that because we all know the tunes, but we could just do so much with it. But when I'm sitting and playing, I learn standards. I mean, when I'm practicing and just at the piano, I will do the things that I always was taught to do or learned to do, which was take a tune, play it in different keys, try to just harmonize every note and just keep going. Those kinds of things, I still do that. And if I'm playing a certain kind of gig, and or I can play jazz tunes and I love to do it and it's a study. I haven't spent years and years and years playing in jazz clubs. That's just not the way my path has been. So right. what do you do with that? I don't know.
0: Don't ask me to start a podcast. That's what I did.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so I love, you know, I love music making and I love to play jazz. But I like, I guess, after many years, when you got a lot of different interests, when you're younger, it sounds very scattered. As you get older, it sort of coalesces and it starts to become a little bit more who you are. I think that's been what I'm trying to say here.
0: As in the different kinds of music that you've explored?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think everyone who plays any music over years just develops their own style after a while. I mean, it's inevitable. And I just feel that the way it's gone for me, I mean, I'm sitting here, we're talking about Eastern European Jewish music. I did the solo album of Jewish folk tunes called Romanian Fantasy, or I did a solo CD of my compositions, or I did this thing in Cuba, or I have this trio with If Henneman and Laurie Friedman, and, or, you know, the Ugly Beauties. I mean, what the hell do you do? And I know that we're, a lot of us are project-driven and have different projects, but I've done a lot of different things over my life.
0: And that comes out in the compositions?
2: Yeah, it has to.
0: Where else is it going to go? <laughs> I don't know. Conversation? <laughs> okay. I, I mean, that seems like a yeah. spot as any to it to wind it up. Thanks so much for coming. Oh, well, it was we'll, a pleasure. We'll, and we'll be listening. That's the show, friends. I hope you liked it. You can find out more about Marilyn and listen to her music on her website, marilynlearner.com. As always, the content and sound quality of the show is the sole responsibility of me, Pete Johnston. Once again, I had some production and editing help from Julian Muya. Thanks for that, Julian. If you like the show, please subscribe to my very occasional episodes and maybe rate and review it somewhere if you can spare the time. Also, if you could tell all your friends to have a listen, I would appreciate that too. For some reason, I'm not on any social media, so I'm counting on you more fully realized digital citizens out there to spread the word. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode, which will be a chat with composer, cellist, writer, and organizer Nick Storing. As usual, we'll let my guest play us out. Here's a track from Marilyn's 2006 album, Romanian Fantasy, on which she crafts solo improvisations on Eastern European and Jewish melodies. This one is called Fun Tashlik, Throw Your Sins to the World. Until next time, thanks for listening to Northern Static.